I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man, and get that cream, black man. We the original man. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, a Marine Corps veteran, entrepreneur, and aspiring author who enjoys thought-provoking, engaging dialogue about race, culture, and business. In the following episode, I interview Mo Light, formerly Muhammad Abdugani, a Rutgers Newark alumni and third-year law student at Harvard Law School. I had the privilege of meeting Mo in 2017 while attending Rutgers University in Newark. I was pursuing my master's in American studies at the time and met Mo while taking a class in nonprofit management. I've had the privilege of watching Mo's ascent from afar and finally had an opportunity to get him on the podcast. As a Muslim American of Middle Eastern descent, Mo brings a unique perspective on the American experience as someone whose families experienced the xenophobic brunt of 9-11, including surveillance from the FBI, while still managing to cultivate his own version of the American dream for him and his family. This was an enlightening interview for me as it shared insight into an American experience many of us aren't privy to. As always, I appreciate you for sharing your time with me, and I hope you enjoy today's show. And we are live. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to season two of Confessions of a Native Son, man. I'm excited. I got a lot of great guests this season. Today, I'm sitting down with Mo Light, uh, a Harvard Law student. Had a chance to meet him back at Rutgers when I was getting my master's. We were both in a nonprofit management class. And uh, this guy is a beast, man. He's going places, social activist. And uh, I'm excited to have him on the platform. So, Mo, why don't you do me a favor and uh, introduce yourself to our audience? What's going on, Mike? Good to have you. Good to ha- um, well, I appreciate you for having me on the show and good to see you again. Um, well, my name is Mohammed, like he uh, told you. Uh, but Mo Light is what everyone calls me since high school. Born and raised uh, in the concrete jungle right across the pond. And then I moved to the Hawaii of the East Coast, New Jersey, at around 10 years old. And I've been here ever since, other than going to law school outside the state. How's uh, COVID treating you on the law school side? Look, man, I think um, it's tough. Uh, I mean, I'm grateful to have had the year and a half at Harvard Law School. Um, But now a year and a half on the back end. Um, is all online, and that obviously sucks. Um, a huge part of Harvard Law School uh, is the connections that you make, the people that you interact with, the professors that you get to know, uh, and the community that you build. And I think a year and a half of that made me realize how important it is, and I wish I had another year and a half, but I also understand um, that this is a privilege uh, and that some other people have it more has it, have it rougher than I do. And so it's okay. You know, I think that in the end of the day, we're doing all that we can to sacrifice so we can move forward. Yeah. It's an interesting time with education, especially higher education. Cause I'll tell you, as like a Naval Academy guy, when I was getting out the Marine Corps, there were so many people that were like, if you don't go to a top 10 business school, you're not, you're not shit. That's exactly what they would say. And then it was like, well, what about online MBAs? And it's like online MBAs are viewed as inferior. Then all of a sudden something like COVID hits, everybody's taking classes online now. And it's just like, it, did, it, did it change the inferiority of it? But it's like, no, I got, th- I got this brand. My education is so much better. But what, we're, what I think we're seeing, this is my opinion, is, you know, I feel like education, you know, what is education in the first place? You know, and I think capitalism has just put such a premium price and monetized it so much that we have this 
perceived value of what stuff is when it's really just artificial? Well, look, you can, you're going to have to put an asterisk next to my uh, JD when I get it, because anyone who graduates between 20 and 22, um, you know, my, the joke around my friends and I, we don't know anything about the law uh, because we spent a year and a half on uh, Zoom law school. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, it shows some grit, some resilience to be able to remain focused on Zoom. But it, it isn't the same. And like you were saying, online MBAs and what we're doing now, it doesn't feel much different. What makes Harvard isn't your classroom experience alone. Yeah, that's great. You're sitting among the smartest people in the world. But what really makes your experience is getting to interact with people outside the classroom, the base that you have, the societies that you join, the clubs that you participate in, the organizations that you lead, you know, the, the back and forth that you have with your professor during office hours, those are the moments that you remember. You don't remember the curriculum as much as you remember the friendships and the people that you meet. And it's hard to do that on Zoom. I don't want to meet other people on Zoom right now. I just want to get in, clock my two hours of class, and get out. Yeah. No, it's interesting, man. How have you been... Um, What's the learning like? Because it's like lecture. Isn't, isn't, isn't legal lecture heavy? Um... Well, it really depends on the professor, but the most common method in law school is called the Socratic method. The Socratic method is where a professor asks you before class to prepare by reading uh, a certain whatever, and then you sign up and you sit down in class. Well, you don't sign up. You just sit down in class. Sometimes you sign up to be a volunteer, but most of the times you don't. Um, and the professor just randomly calls you and says, Mo, Last week, the United States Supreme Court decided Bostock versus Clayton County. How does this um, case interact with affirmative action? And you have to sit and grapple with the information right there on the spot, kind of quick on your feet. You got to think about it. Um, and that's usually how a lot of law school is. Some professors do lecture style. Other professors do, you know, just a common back and forth, hands-on discussion style. But on Zoom... It's been absolutely just lectured at for two hours with the occasional break and the occasional, um, you know, volunteer who raises their hand or gets called on. I mean, I'm glad you don't have to suffer through that, you know, uh, running your own business now. But how how do you feel like the education at Rutgers would have been like if you had to take it online? Um, I don't think it would have been as good. But again, I'm an autodidact. So I found out that I need a combination of ways to learn. You know, so I, I learn via audio. That's why I do this podcast. I enjoy good educational content. You know, I watch videos, I read, and I get app. So I, I, you know, for me, education is all about like, there's a problem. I need to figure out how to solve it. What knowledge and information is out there that I can leverage that's going to empower me to solve this problem. And so I'm kind of like a futurist when it comes to like education. I think our education system is shot and I think we just monetize the hell out of it. And uh, I'm actually excited to see what COVID does in terms of flipping the model. I think it's going to make it more accessible for a lot of people. Well, yeah, I think for sure. I mean, if we walk away from COVID having learned no lessons in all the disruptions between the hotel industry, the airline industry, the tourism industry, you know, just the model of working from home and especially the educational model, which to be quite frank, since Horace Mann created public school education, it hasn't changed much. For over 100 years, a classroom has looked like a classroom. There's a bunch of seats lined up with a teacher in the front with chalk. Nowadays, they have smart boards, but not much has changed. You know, not much has changed. There's not a lot of, uh, well, to be fair, there's a lot of people trying to innovate, but we don't have a nationwide innovation going on. Um, and I think that's the problem, right? How do you remain competitive 
against a global market, including China um, and other countries across the world who are, you know, just absolutely killing it on the educational front. A recent study showed that we're not even in the top 20 when it comes to educating our youth. Um, our literacy rates are not where they're supposed to be. Our, our ability to grasp the new uh, informational technological technological age is beyond um, beyond like you know uh, repair at this point maybe. Um, and it really becomes a question of how do we do damage control before we lose our footing as the number one in the world. See, this is why I like this podcast. I get smart guests like Mo to come on here and just drop them knowledge bombs. I'm like taking notes right now. I got to bring you back on the podcast to talk education. Because, you know, we're just chopping it up, man. But uh, in all sincerity, though, I really am happy to have you on this show, man. And I want to get us, you know, to, to talk about, you know, really why I brought you on here. And so, you know, one of the things we do on this show is we give a confession, right? So I'm going to go first. And uh, my confession is that, Mo, when me and you first met, right, it, it was Rutgers. I were taking that uh, nonprofit management class. I realized when I was in class with you that I had not been around Muslim students. Muslim people, Muslim anything since I had left Afghanistan, you know, now Newark is obviously a Muslim city. It was my first time getting exposed to black Muslims, to be honest, because I'm from the South. Now you have onesies and twosies, but when I was in class at Rutgers, I looked around and I saw the hijabs, you know what I mean? I saw you super sharp and smart. And I realized that it hit me at that moment that I had been slightly brainwashed, you know, because it was just this sense of like, not necessarily feeling uncomfortable, but just in this sense of like, I felt myself like staring at y'all in class, you know, because I was so fascinated because I hadn't seen Muslim Americans in their element, you know, just comfortable and happy. And when you're in the, when I was an infantry officer in the Marines, you know, we had a whole workup. And during that whole workup before I went to Afghanistan, which was like a year long, you know, we had uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Interpret. We had interpreters. We had role players. Right. And they would act like the Afghans, you know, and then you deploy and then, you know, I'm overseas and then I come back. And so it was uh, that's one of the things I was always very appreciative of, of Rutgers was just the sheer diversity and the fact of like I walk in a classroom. And even though like for the first time in my life, you know, since coming to the going to the Naval Academy, I could be the only black person in class, but not feel like a minority, you know. And uh, so that's what I wanted to tell you. I always wanted to tell you that. I don't know if I messaged you that before, but I just remember when I was seeing your class, I'm like, man, this dude is sharp. He's crushing it. And I'm just like staring like, damn, this dude's Muslim. Like, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Where, how, how, how much time between you leaving the naval um, Afghanistan, I'm sorry, um, and attending Rutgers was there? Probably about three years or so. Three years. Where were you during those three years? Um, so I came back from, Af I went to Afghanistan in uh, June of 2012, came back in July. Then, you know, I had another workup and then I went on another deployment, but this time to Japan and the Philippines. But for the Marine Corps, like when I was in the military, when I, my first couple of years in military, we all knew we were going to Afghanistan. So all the training and everything was set up around that. All the scenarios and the role players were set up around the Taliban and IEDs and kind of all this kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, when I got back, we were kind of, it's funny, it's like 2020, we probably still got people in Afghanistan, but we were told that we were kind of drawn down. And so they changed our training. So we, when I got back, you know, we didn't really do a lot of the same training with the Afghan role players. They had, it just wasn't to the same extent, but I'm telling you on my full work up to Afghanistan, it was like living and breathing. I read the Afghan campaign. I read everything about, you know, 
Muslim culture that I could get my hands on. And then it's just like, I had not experienced the American Muslim. So you spent time in Japan. I mean, after you're done with all the military endeavors and operations, how much time was there between all those military operations and I guess when you got to Rutgers, I'm, I'm, I guess where I'm trying to get at is, did you have, did you not have the opportunity to interact with Muslim Americans after you left the military? Like the first time you've interacted with them was in a classroom setting. That's correct. Because where I was stationed at the base is Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. It's the sticks, mm-hmm. Confederate flag. Yeah, you're not going to find Muslims there. You're not going to find Muslims there. You ain't really going to find a lot of black people there. So it's just like everything, all the culture was built around the base. So it was very kind of isolated. Then you get up north and you're in an urban area and it's just a little different. And I remember when I moved to Newark, you know, black people named Nasir and Narik and all these different names. I was like, yo, this is different. They're not eating pork. I walked into a restaurant. You know, I was like, oh, can I get some bacon? They were like, we don't serve slab here. I was like, what is slab? I had no idea what that was. But it just opened me up to like a new culture. And also the interesting part about Newark, it has a deep history to the nation of Islam, which is separate from Islam. Um, and you have Malcolm Shabazz, Muhammad, um, sorry, uh, you have Malcolm X, you have Elijah Muhammad's roots here. Um, you know, Raz Baraka's father, Amiri Baraka, was involved a little bit. Um, he was not himself Muslim, but I, I believe his last name, Baraka, comes from the word Barak which means uh, the same thing that Obama's name comes from, Barack Obama, which means blessing, uh, an Arabic word for blessing. Um, Baraka could be a different, you know, uh, might have a different route, but there's deep ties to Islam and Newark, uh, for sure. And there's a couple mosques everywhere you could look. I mean, there's a lot of mosques. So, yeah, I mean, I mean that was your confession. I mean, you want to hear mine? Yeah, I want to hear yours. Well... I, I guess my confession uh, is that um, my real last name uh, wasn't White. Um, it was actually Abdul Ghani. And I think uh, the story of why I changed my last name is the story of Muslim Americans' general experience in America after 9-11. And I think um, we might get into it now or get into it later in the show. Um but changing my name was a realization of like uh, the difficulty sometimes of having the same name as another Muslim American spelled the same way who, you know, just so happened to go to the same school, same college, the same mosque, the same community and same friends, and also worked the same job. Um, and the government, you know, being confused themselves of who's who. Um, and then showing up to my house, uh, and you know, under the mistaken impression that I am the other Muhammad Abdul Ghani, um, and I realizing that in my career, if the government is getting it wrong, the average American is going to get it wrong too. Um, and so it made me realize um, that, especially for someone who wants to serve publicly and wants to get involved. Uh, in his community and might be in, in, interested in becoming a professor that there's a lot of, you know, obstacles and in, including like having to have someone who um, the government rightfully or wrongfully associates um, with someone who needs to be watched over. Um, and so I think I was like, okay, let me avoid this. So I changed my name, which is a, the same experience that you have with 
Muhammad's calling themselves Mike's, Maltesim's calling themselves Mark's, Khalid's calling themselves Kyle, you know, Muslim women removing their hijabs after 9-11. So I, I guess my experience from my confession, while the story itself is unique to me, the general theme of adapting um, and changing um, to, I guess, um, to to not have as rough of as, as a trajectory, um, you know, is is not unique to me alone. It's it's a story that everyone has. I appreciate uh, when I say when I say everyone, I mean uh, the Muslim Americans. Well, I appreciate you sharing that uh, with our audience. Um, you mind if I ask you a question about that? Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel any cognitive dissonance having to do that? You know, in a sense of like. You know, you have this loyalty to your culture and your upbringing, and, you know, you're going to have kids and family and you've probably got some people that are looking up to you, you know, with the last name. And then, you know, to have to kind of change your name, not necessarily to assimilate, but to survive and thrive in this system. Well, look, um, it's hard to avoid being considered Muslim when your first name is Muhammad. Um, so I don't feel like there is one um, this that I'm hiding or running away from it. So my first name is still Muhammad. And then the second is, um, you know, there's only because of dissonance of you believe that there's their intention. Um, and I don't think um, my identity as a Muslim American puts me in tension with anything more as an Irish American or a Jewish American or a Chinese American or a Hispanic American or an African American. You, you could also be an African American and Muslim. You know, you can be someone who has spent generations, you know, building this country and has roots in this country back dating back to slavery in the colonial era and be Muslim. When this country was founded, Thomas Jefferson was handed a Quran and he has the Quran until now. You in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court's outer pillars, they have an engraving of Muhammad. Um, you know, I... Um, you, you can go down the list of how Muslims have influenced this country. In the military right now, we make up a half a percent uh, of, of people in the, in, the, uh, in the military. And that's a pretty good percentage considering the fact that Muslims only make up 1% of the population. So we serve about, you know, a pretty proportional amount. Um, and so, and people in the military don't change their last names, don't change their first names. And I think there's actually a blessing, right? Because in the great story of America, and the words right under the Statue of Liberty, bring me your tired, bring me your poor, um, your huddled masses yearning to be free or breathing to be free. You know, I completely butchered that. Um, but the main theme behind that is that this is a country where the best of ideas and the best of institutions are built by a variety of perspectives. You know, for example, Steve Jobs was a Syrian immigrant. Um, and so you have someone who's Middle Eastern, Robert George, is a Sarkasian American. He's one of the most prominent public intellectuals. You know, uh, you can go to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, another Muslim. And when you think of Muhammad Ali, and when you think of all these incredible individuals, you think of them as great Americans, right? How do we remember Steve Jobs? We don't remember Steve Jobs for being a Syrian immigrant. We remember him for what he contributed to Apple. You don't remember Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because his name sounds Muslim. You remember him because he was one of the greatest Lakers and the greatest NBA players to ever live. You don't remember, um, you know, all these other people um, based on their identity alone. You remember them because of who they became, 
and how they serve this country. And that's how I think of myself as well, too. And I don't, so that's, that's why I don't feel like there is a distance between being a Muslim, raising my kids Muslim, and being an American. I feel like it's one in one. Again, I appreciate you for sharing that, man. I'm excited to do a little deeper dive as we continue with this show. Before we do, though, I got to give a shout out to our sponsor. Give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Do us a favor and head over to confessionsofanativeson.com, sign up for our newsletter, and purchase you some dope coffee. If you're interested in having me speak to your organization, click the link on our website and someone from my team will get back to you. All right, Mo, time to jump into the theme of today's show, Confessions of a Muslim American. You talked a little bit about, you know, some of the challenges with at post 9-11. Why don't you take us back to the beginning and tell us what it's like to, you know, grow up as a, as a Muslim American? Sure. Um, so I was born and raised in uh, the great state of New York, in Queens of New York. <clears throat> my parents immigrated, my father in 85, my mother in 95. Uh, my brother and sister were born uh, and raised in Germany, and then they moved uh, to Egypt, and then they finally moved to America in 95. Then obviously my parents rekindled, obviously because they're 10 years apart. My dad got a citizenship, brought the family over, um, and then I was born a year later in 96. And I guess I don't have any early memories of the first four years, five years, until September 11th. You know, I think that that and the turn of the century were the two biggest things that a young child of me, probably a toddler, five or six years old, remembers. Um, and I distinctly remember that I was in school, PS 166, right across the street um, from where I lived. And, you know, all of a sudden the alarms start blaring and teachers grabbing children asking us all to line up behind each other. And we had side doors uh, in the classroom. So we got out the side doors. And then we all filed in the hallway. And then they immediately called parents. And they sent out a mass alert to all parents to come to pick up your children. And at that moment, we all thought that America was under attack. You know, the first tower had been hit. And we're running out. And all I see is, like, mothers with their arms wide open. You know, cars pulled up on the street, blocking traffic. Everyone's just hysterical running, grabbing children. And my mom is out there and she's screaming and she picks me up and we run inside the house, uh, the apartment building. And we go upstairs to our neighbor's um, apartment and we're on the fifth floor or the fourth floor, I can't remember. And But I do remember distinctly that the kitchen, small little kitchen, um, has a window that you can automatically see the World Trade Center. And you can look and you can see, you know, the world, um, the Twin Towers. Um, and you can see the buildings burning. Um, and my mother started crying. And eventually, you know, after she caught her breath, we realized that um, my sister was in Manhattan. Um, and that we had lost contact with her. And we hadn't heard back from her. Um my dad was also working. He's a bus, at that point, I believe he was a bus driver or a taxi driver, one of the two. Um, and so he was also either in Manhattan or in Brooklyn. And so we were all pretty much in the boroughs. Um, and we thought we were under attack. 
Um, and I, we were right. We were under attack by some terrible hijackers who took over planes in the name of, you know, uh, terrorism, in the name of jihad, the wrong form of jihad, struck the building. And I remember distinctly, you know, feeling very sad just for like the state of the country. Like this is the only country that I knew I was born here. Um, I went to public school. You know, I, I had the, the Apple and Eve juice boxes. Um, I was going to a laundromat to do our laundry. You know, I remembered all the small things, you know, the Saturday morning cartoons. And for a week, all that stopped. We didn't leave the house, you know, because people were terrified of us. Uh, and we were terrified of like getting like, you know, wrongfully hit. And so my mom stayed home. Uh, my sister at that point was still wearing uh, something called the niqab. So there's the hijab, which covers your face, and then the niqab that covers up to your eyes, the burqas, what other people call them. And we were still, they were still wearing it. You know, they were having a real conversation about whether or not they should go to school. And, you know, I remember then George Bush came down to um, ground zero, um, and he gave a speech, and I think, was it Rudy Giuliani who was right next to him? And he said, we'll give you guys whatever you'll need and that they'll pay a terrible price, you know, for what happened. And then he, I believe he called like an emergency state of the union. And he said, we don't want to blame, you know, Muslim Americans for this because this is not their fault. You know, this is people who are hijacked to religion, extremists and terrorists. And I felt like at that point we were in the clear. But boy, was I wrong. Uh, we got out and we ended up um, watching you know, people's hijabs getting pulled off their heads, people spitting at us as we walked across the street. Um, my curfew went from eight o'clock to six o'clock. My name was no longer pronounced Mohammed. It was pronounced Mike or Mo for short. And people took different approaches when they saw us. Other people, you know, walked across the street. Um, but I think it was a combination of being one Muslim and two being black um, that you just really couldn't tell when someone walked across the street, most likely because it was your black, because they don't know when you're walking across the street what your name is, unless you're walking with your mother who's wearing a hijab. Uh, and so those questions come up. But in the midst of all of this, you know, I realized looking back that the pain that I'm feeling, I, I try to square it with the pain the country was feeling. And I try to put things into perspective, you know, like if I was in America during 1940, 41, when Pearl Harbor was attacked on December 7th, 1941. And all I knew was that Japanese people had just bombed our country um, and they hate our country and they're doing it in the name of, you know, whatever religion that they're doing it under i think i would have a very hard time you know trying to understand them in the midst of being so angry uh and so united against them i think you know the average american would probably act in the way that they did an average american today probably act the same way that they did in 1940 that maybe maybe unfortunately maybe i would act the same way as well too i would say hey like you know J japanese people are doing what they're doing if i was in those 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 uh those suits but i i think i wouldn't but i think other people 
might be thinking that they would as well too. And it made me realize that um, people are upset, rightfully so. 3,000 people were just killed um, in New York, in DC, and in Pennsylvania. And so you think about it and you say, you know, like something has to be done, right? Something has to be done. How do we target extremists? How do we bring, you know, relief and redemption to the people that lost their lives and were impacted by this violence, the first responders who, God bless them, did everything that they could, our military men and women who are now being shipped off to battle to defend our country. I guess as a Muslim American, it's like, where do I fit in all of this? What is what is my role? Do I defend my religion? Do I then uh, serve? And I guess the answer for about four or 5,000 Muslim Americans was to join the military after 9-11 because they didn't find it to be contradictory to love your religion and also love your country. And so while they picked up the Quran and packed it in their military bag on a flight to Afghanistan, they didn't find any contradiction in that. So I think reflecting back on those moments when I felt torn was that I think the best way forward was to acknowledge the pain that everyone was feeling, to acknowledge the hurt that our country was under, and to try to figure out what we can do to make people less afraid of us, and also to push our leaders to stand strong uh, when everyone was against us, and to be like, we're not going to do what we did to the Japanese people in 1940s and sent them to intermittent camps, and now nowadays and demonize Muslims. So that was me growing up as a young Muslim American. You know, name changed, uh, address changed. I guess at some point we decided to also leave New York and come to New Jersey. I think partially because um, it just became a little bit unbearable. Uh, so we started looking for a house in 2002. We finally moved, moved out a few years later um, to New Jersey. So that, that I think, and I think, yeah, I mean, look, I think I remember walking into the classroom after 9-11 um, and students like my age, can you imagine in probably like third or second grade students my age, this was actually the third grade probably, yeah, my age. So obviously their parents are telling them something. These are just not kids who are just learning on their own who are asking the teacher, can I still be friends with this guy? After history, people with the same name as him I just attacked our country. And they were just like, wow, you felt so ashamed, so humiliated, so hurt and betrayed. Um, and then, um, then the surveillance came. That's what came next. And I think that's the unintended consequence of trying to keep your country safe, right? because you don't want another 9-11. So what do you do? You have to go and investigate. Like what, what other options does the United States have? You have to investigate what's going on. You have to root out the radical terrorism. But they did it in such a destructive way. So I think here, it could be summed up like, it was good intentions, that bad policy execution. The good intention was, we wanna root out any more extremists sleeper cells, any more extremist thoughts, we want to find them. But the bad execution was realizing that Americans are, Muslim Americans are Americans and that we're on your side and we also want to root us out. And so let us be like partners and the NYPDs and the FBI's and the, the um, Department of Homeland Security was created after 
with all of their task forces, how could we help you do this? But instead, we were ignored. So then people like my father, including my father, were then watched and spied over. We were followed by cars. Our mosques were listened to. Remarkably, the Associated Press wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning series of articles that went viral. I mean, by the fact that it became Pulitzer Prize-winning articles covering the surveillance that were done to many mosques, including the mosque that I attended in New Jersey. How they had NYPD cars stationed outside and undercover people following us. And then um, someone that I know filed uh, and was being filed at Rutgers, actually, a few years before we got there. Samir Hashmi, and you can look this up, Hashmi versus NYPD, where he took NYPD to court uh, for their surveillance methods against them, even though he's done nothing wrong. And I think that when the United States threw a net, if you think of it as an analogy, America threw a net to catch fish that they considered to be dangerous. When they threw that net, that net was overthrown and they caught people you know, that were innocent, that had nothing to do with this. And there was a lot of psychological damage. Um, and I think, I think the country has had a lot of conversations about this. There's a lot of people doing wonderful work about this. Um, so that's, that's what, what it was like growing up after 9-11. You mentioned surveillance, and I know you're a lawyer, right? You're pursuing a legal career. And both of us are very well educated. We understand what it means to be unconstitutional, right? And when you think about the extreme of the Patriot and what it did to American citizens, how do you find that even justifiable within the legal system? Well, I'm not too familiar um, with the Patriot Act, but I can tell you uh, that the United States passed a lot of laws after 9-11. So they, for example, first, the United States redefined enemy combatant. What is an enemy combatant? Any combatant is someone that's caught on the battlefield, right? Trying to go against America. But what is a battlefield in the 21st century when someone can hop on a computer in the United States and try to sabotage our infrastructure. So they started catching people in and outside the United States, U.S. citizens inside the United States, United States citizens. I'm not talking people who are undocumented. I'm not talking about people who are permanent residents. I'm talking about United States citizens who are rounded up for, for questioning. So that, hands down, is unconstitutional. But Congress then passed a law saying that you don't have to. It's called the writ of habeas corpus. And the writ of habeas corpus means you have to produce the body in court, which means you have to, if you're going to hold someone and detain them, you have to show up in front of a judge and say why you're holding them, right? So they created all these military courts. They, they created, they sent people to uh, Guantanamo Bay. They tried to find procedures and ways around it where they don't have to respond to the court. And they can just, you know, unlawfully, in my opinion, hold people for as long as they wanted. And, and no one was going to say no. Can you imagine a congressperson, a senator or a congressperson 
who votes against the law that says we, we want to fight against terrorism, you'd look soft on terrorism, especially after 9-11. You would look insane. I mean, the only person in Congress who voted against it was Barbara Lee. One person. And she was attacked mercilessly for it. And so, look, we had good intentions as a country, but we had bad execution. And hold, who do you hold accountable? You hold Rumsfeld accountable. You hold Cheney accountable. You hold Bush accountable. Um, you hold the CIA director accountable. You hold people who, you know, like John Yo uh, at the Office of Legal Counsel who passed the torture memos, the very famous torture memos, which tried to argue that torturing was legal. When we all know that confessions made while being tortured are not admissible in court. Why? Because they would say anything for you to stop waterboarding them. And so, you know, in an effort to protect America would do a lot of damage. I remember distinctly when Abu Ghraib, the pictures came out of the naked men stacked up on each other in the prison. And that changed a lot of people's opinions. Um, so when you talk about what I think was lawful and lawful, as a, as a law student, as someone who has practiced zero days of real law after law school, so I say there's a lot of humility and I might be wrong on a lot of things. I think I feel very confident saying that uh, many of our actions were wrong and not things that I think our country would do to, today again. Like, for example, when you look back to 1945 in the 1940s, when we locked people up in, in concentration camps, we put Japanese people onto buses and onto trains and we shipped them to, to like intermittent camps and we held them there for the duration of the war. And the Supreme Court of the United States said that was lawful. They held that it was lawful, right? But they later said it wasn't, was not lawful. And I think it's the same here, right? So our surveillance methods and what we've done might have been lawful when they were doing it. But 20 years later, after 9-11 in 2021, I think when we reflect, we'd be like, we made a lot of mistakes with a lot of unlawful action that we took I think that's how I feel. I think that we made a lot of mistakes. Um, and I think more than mistakes, I think we made bad decisions. Um, and I think they made a lot of bad decisions. Um, look, I, I think national security is a tough place. I mean, because you're fighting against the what if. Because you, you don't get cheered on as loudly for preventing a terrorist bombing that never occurs. Because it never happened. The guy never got through. And so it's a tough job. A lot of people don't take um, lightly. And I applaud our men and women in service, both on the battlefield and in government, who are trying their best to figure out where the next, you know, Orlando shooting, where the next San Bernardino shooting, where the next 9-11 is trying to take place and trying to stop it before it happens. And you don't get an award for stopping things before it happens sometimes. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a tough job. And I think there's both sides have a lot of good and bad arguments, but I do think there's a lot of unconstitutional things that were done. Even still, it seems like you've had the ability to rise above it. You know, just talking to you, you know, you're, you know, you're very unapologetic about your faith. Um, but you also have an unapologetic, you also have a very apologetic attitude um, about the situation, which I applaud you for having empathy and understanding. Let me ask you this, though. Um, when you think about those you grew up with, family included, 
what was the toll this kind of took on them? Were they able to come out of it as uh, empathetic as you were? Well, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to have discussions with them individually to have their deep thoughts. But I think as a general brush, I think there's a deep disdain for big government and for the NYPD. Um, but at the same time, you know, like we celebrate our law enforcement and members of my community have went and served in the military. I myself, you know, tried to sign up for the, um, the our Air Force Reserve. So they told me to be a JAG. I need to graduate from law school first and then apply. Um, so that might be a process. I'm now currently under the process as we speak as of today to sign up part-time as a res- uh, in the National Guard, the New Jersey National Guard. Uh, and there's a lot of people like myself who, um, you know, want to serve. And so when I think of my family, I'm sure, I'm sure you will have people who are empathetic. Um, I'm sure you have people who are empathetic, but take a different view than me. Uh, so it's not one, it's not like mutually exclusive. You, you, you can only be empathetic or you can only be on the opposite side. You can be both. And you will have people who saw nothing wrong with what the government did. You will have, it runs a spectrum. I mean, it's as diverse as the American opinion because we're our America. Yeah, I think so often, you know, they try to make things black and white, but it's not necessarily the case. You know, we got a complicated history in America. You know, and like I say on this podcast, like, we'll, you know, true Americans got to understand they can look at black people, brown people, yellow people and say, that's my brother. That's my cousin. You know, but until that until that time frame, though, you know, we've got to have discussions like this because, you know, I like you sharing your story because a lot of people don't get to hear this. You know, they don't not, not from your perspective, at least not, you know, a lot of service members. So take us up to speed up from, you know, your younger fourth grade all the way up to high school and eventually college. Sure. I mean, in high school, I was lucky to be surrounded with just a diverse set of people. I wasn't like the only Muslim in the class. There's a bunch of Muslims. Um, and well, a bunch of people named Muhammad. And so I guess at some point people started giving you nicknames because there's so many Muhammads, you can't tell them apart. So you can't be like, oh, Muhammad tells me like, which one? They'd be like, Mo, they'd be like Gobo or Mo Light, you know? Or they call they call you they call you uh, you know T Mo T whatever they call you by your name. So I got the nickname eventually in high school Mo Light. That was my nickname. Well, they called me Muhammad Lightning, right? Then they shortened it to Muhammad Light. Then they shortened it to Mo Light. And I came from playing football. So all my friends were like, "Yo, you're pretty fast." They called me Lightning, and I don't think I was that fast. But you know, I guess it's just for them like, an excuse for me to call me something else, and it stuck. And so I went to high school, went through high school, normal experience. I don't think anyone ever, you know, like shouted at me ethnic slurs, right? Because first and foremost, I think I'm in a unique position. So unless I tell you I'm Muslim, or unless I use my full name, Muhammad Abdul Ghani back then, you have no idea. More often than not, people with my skin complexion were considered black. And I myself consider myself an African-American. I think it's a difference if you consider the black American and an African-American. I think a black American is someone with roots in America who has ancestry tied to slavery versus an African-American and an Asian-American. Someone an Asian-American is someone who came from the descendants of Asia and an African-American being someone who came from Africa. Um, I mean, yes, black Americans have come eventually from Africa if you trace it back. But I think when you use the word black American, 
here I'm getting a little bit off topic, oh, but good. I think Mike's my my topic is a my uh, my experience as an African American um, is that you know people consider me black right off the right off the rip. You know, like no one looks at me and goes like you're white. You know, no one looks at me. You know, I actually think this is funny because when I get pulled over by a cop, my biggest fear isn't being called, you know, a sand nigger. And um, my biggest fear is that of a black person because that's my experience. I am worried, you know, that if I don't comply, um, if I don't uh, talk the way he wants me to talk, that I'm going to be treated as a black person. When I go to a convenience store, I'm treated like every other black American or every other African-American, um, you know, when I have conversation with friends, it's, I have Muslim friends who are white passing or from Syria or from Palestine or from the mountains of Turkey, who, when you talk to them, they're white passing and they love it that way. They want to be considered Caucasian, but in high school, I found myself associating with two groups, the Muslim Arabs and non-Muslim Arabs, the Arabs in general, that was one group. And I had my, my other friends who also sometimes mixed with my Arab friends who were just straight up black, um, black or African-American. And the reason was because both of them were real experience. And the same thing in college. I never felt like I had to join the black student union or the Muslim student association. Not because I didn't feel like I can fit in either, but because we were both majorities on campuses, like large minorities on campuses. Like you would see a Muslim person everywhere you turn on Rutgers Newark, and I'm sure you remember that. And you would see a lot of black people everywhere you turn. So it didn't feel like a minority. But when I joined Harvard Law School, I joined both the Black Law Student Association and the Muslim Student Association because we were a reflective minority. And because the Muslim Student Association Yes, there was an affinity there. Yes, that's part of my identity. But there's a lot of things that they could not address that only the Black Student Association can. Right. So I found myself saying, you know, that's just my identity. I'm a Black Muslim. I'm an African-American. Um, I'm an African-American. African African-Muslim-American. Um, that's interesting. I might get you on another. You might have to be a repeat next talking about this stuff because I'll, I'll tell you. You know, on my end, I am from the South, right? Mm-hmm. I'm descended. I am descended from slaves, and one of the things that frustrates me—not mm-hmm. necessarily you, but just this idea of you know people get a, upset about affirmative action, all these issues, and then we have grants and all this mm-hmm. address the economic inequality within Black America. But there's so many different groups that are benefiting from. I don't even call it, you know, I don't, how do I say this? Okay. There's a lot of programs, especially at universities, right? To check their box and check their quotas. Places like, you know, Harvard and Yale and all these different places that can say that they're more diverse when they really, than they really are with regards to the black population. So, you know, for me, it's like, and these, I had yeah. to name the show Native Son, just so people would understand of Native Black American. You know, it's like, it's so wordy now. It's all over the place. But it's like, how do we as black people make space for ourselves and look after our interests? Because a lot of times I feel like we're overlooked and undervalued still. Sure. You know, I can't speak for the larger population. So again, I only speak for myself. Um, But I think there is a difference, right? I think, I think 
I understand sentiments by by Black Americans, descendants of slaves, when they say we were the real ones impacted by slavery. You know, because you were right. You are the ones who are descendants of slaves. You're the ones who survived. You're not. Well, here's how I put it. I think your grandfathers and your grandparents and your forefathers are the ones who survived Jim Crow Reconstruction, the 60s, the 70s, and here we are now, right? For someone like myself, while you and I share a lot of similarities, I can never truly relate to that history in the sense of like, that isn't my familiar history. I know where my grandfathers came from. You know, I can trace back my lineage beyond the 1700s. Right. Yes, you and I share the same like dialect, the same skin color, the same food. We, I mean, I can I can cook up a mean peach cobbler and some Thanksgiving food. You know what I mean? I can whip it up. But at the end of the day, right, it's not the same experience. I mean, it's just to be very frank. I mean, because Black Americans were left out of the GI Bill, they were redlined, they were ghettoized. We forced them into neighborhoods. Um, in urban neighborhoods that were densely populated. And then we drove down all the public services that they got, like their public education, um, like their, their county services and mental health services. And so when a person like myself, you know, immigrates to America, I, I was born here in the United States. When my parents immigrated to America, but people like my, my family with their story, they face a similar kind of challenges. Yes, because the average American does not make these differentiations that I'm making right now. They have not thought about it this deeply. They see everyone and they be, I'm going to treat everyone equally without regard to skin color, which is an admirable thing. But I think it's like you're telling everyone, I will count the winner of this race the same way. But you ran that race with a different set of weights on your ankles. Then I ran that race. So if we're running a 400-meter sprint, you know, I got a head start because I had, you know, parents who were there to support me. I had money, you know, even though I, I might have grew up in a tough neighborhood in Queens, which I did. Um, but I think when we're trying to correct for this country's history, you know, I think we're trying to correct for what we did to Black Americans, not what we did to Nigerians, not what we did to Egyptians, not what we did to Sierra Leoneans, not what we did to South Africans. We're trying to correct for what we did to the descendants of slaves. And those people are the ones who directly deserve, you know, um, the, 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 the special support of the government in whatever form that may be, you know. Um, and I think that, you know, if you think about it, what does that look like? It looks like, uh, you know, like programs like Medicare for All or other programs that like truly do help um, black Americans. Um, it's, a good, um, it's a good conversation. <laughs> I mean, you talk about government. I'll tell you, man, for me, I've come to realize I feel like the government does more harm than good when it tries to intervene mm -hmm. on behalf of people of color, black people, you know, and it's almost mm -hmm. a sense of like, again, I feel cognitive dissonance of it. It's like all the stuff you talked about, the surveillance, all that kind of stuff that happened to uh, black civil rights leaders, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not, um, um, Malcolm X, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, Cointel Pro with the uh, Nation of Islam and uh, 
you know, the Black Panthers. And so it's like we put all this trust in the federal government to step in and do right by us when in history it's proven that they've done everything except that, you know, only when it benefits us, you know? Look, I, I mean, I agree with the general sentiment, right? You don't have to tell someone who immigrated from Egypt where we have dictators and no democracy how much I hate big dictators and big government who steps over our lives and our privacy. I understand that. But government is, a, is made up of men, not of angels. And government, you know, is only as good as the people that serve in it. It's these institutions, the FBI, is just an institution. The way it functions, it functions when people like you and me sign up to become an FBI officer, then we rise through the ranks and we become the FBI director of FBI or the CIA director. When people, average Americans who end up serving our country admirably and honorably, that's that's what our government is made up of, right? Our government is, is, is made up of human beings like you and me, like our children. You know, one day you're going to have a child and one day your listeners are all going to have children or they don't already do, who are going to look us in the face and they'll be like, mom and dad, I want to finish college and then I want to go serve my country. I want to take a job in D.C. and I want to go and serve in the State Department because I feel like our image abroad has been hurt. Or someone says, I want to go serve in the United States Treasury Department because I feel like the economic policies are not helping communities like mine in rural Pennsylvania, in upstate New York, in western Massachusetts, in south, southern Georgia. I want to be able to help these communities, Right. And then you hear people just dismiss government as like a bunch of crooks. It's true, right? But everything that we got from history, it started from the ground up from people fighting for it. But then it was officially recognized by the government. You think about it. Uh, we fought for the founding of this country against the Britain colonial people. And then we overthrew the government and implemented our own government. So that's step one. Then. The, the Civil War, wasn't that a, a war to end slavery? And then wasn't the people, wouldn't, doesn't, didn't the government after that implement the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment? But it was the same government that failed Reconstruction. And it was the same government that failed Jim Crow. But it was also the same government that passed the GI Bill, that passed Medicare and Medicaid. The same government that passed the, the Great Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Act of the 60s. It was the same government that helped us get polio eradicated. It was the same government, you know, that it was the Supreme Court who said Brown versus Board of Education, separate but not e uh, separate is not equal. But it was the same Supreme Court that upheld Plessy v. Ferguson and upheld separate but equal in the first place. So a story of government is a story of the fight between good and bad. And you just have to keep fighting because in the end of the day, government is never going to go away. So either you can say as a good person, I don't want to be involved in government. And then guess what? The people who are corrupt, people who are greedy and people who are power hungry, they're going to go involved in, go and get involved in government. And then you get this self-perpetuating cycle of bad people getting involved, good, good people being turned off because they see bad people involved. So they never get involved. And then bad people get, keep getting involved. Democracy only works when people like you and me and people like your listeners sign up to do their part. And that's what government is made up of. That is very true. I guess but for me, and I'm just speaking personally for me, nobody else, I just understand that mm -hmm. you got to have economic power, right? Economic first, then political power, right? I think too often 
we've been trying to, for black people in this country, we've been trying to push on a political front without any of the economic front. And so that's how, you know, institutions basically want to protect, you know, they want to protect their power. And so I think it's always, it's always going to be hard for black people to compete and get stuff done uh, when we don't have any economic power in this country. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, Martin Luther King was killed when he was in Memphis, Tennessee, walking with the sanitation workers, trying to get them economic justice. Uh, and I agree, economic justice is super important. But sometimes you're playing a game where the the field, the level, the, the playing field is not level, right? You're playing a game where generations of white Americans have owned a home that was subsidized by the government. You're playing a game where the GI Bill, the GI Bill, which was a very admirable thing, but excluded many black Americans. You're playing a game where the government would rate homes lower if there was a black person in the neighborhood. If it was an all white neighborhood, it would cost more and it would appreciate more, right? So then what happens when you got government policy? There's a great book by, called The Color of Law by Richard Ross. Got it right here. Yep. And, and it talks about how throughout the centuries and the decades, we've ex- the government has intentionally excluded black Americans from economic power. Is the solution then nowadays to be like, okay, you know what, what was wrong was wrong, but let's try to start over and let's keep going. It's hard. It's hard when in Boston, the average wealth of a white family is over $100,000. The average wealth of a black family, Michael, is $8. Not even $10, $8. When I tell that to people, they usually guess what 50,000 no it's eight dollars the average wealth of a black family in massachusetts uh in boston and i think a similar story can be told in new york la and other big cities that have a huge black population atlanta dc and um look for 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 us to have look for us to be better off as as a group i think we need to have a fair playing field for all americans and a fair playing field for all americans includes black americans and all the other non-white groups and the white groups because the white working class group also was left out. And I think economic justice for all includes, you know, no one should work 40 hours a week as just a general policy and not be able to make ends meet. Is that not something we tell everyone, if you work hard and you, and you sacrifice, then you'll make it. You'll get the nice white picket fence in the suburbs with a nice Mustang or the Corvette. You'll get the cheeseburger and the hot dog barbecue grills. All right. But when you're intentionally left out of the process, that's called a political process. When you're left out of decision making, that's called a political process. So I think the two, economic justice and political justice, are intertwined. And I think we kind of deviated a lot. Uh, the confessions of a Muslim there's American. no rules in audio man listen there's so much be quite frank bullshit dialogue on media these days that our listeners will appreciate mm-hmm. dialogue from two educated men of color I can tell you that mm-hmm. but to your point 
I want to, I want to, because the, the, the hard thing about being a podcast host is obviously not pushing your agenda and getting, you know, guests an opportunity to, to share the platform. And so I don't want to push too hard, but you, you say stuff and I'm just curious. I want to engage. So I want to, I want to go ahead and take a step back though. I want you to talk to us about, you know, so you, you going to Harvard, take us up to Harvard. So you're at high school, right? Okay. So I, high school, I finished high school. I can't afford college. You know, it was actually so bad that um, one week I got an email um, from the SAT saying, hey, you signed up for the SAT. Don't forget to bring a number two pencil, two forms of government ID, an eraser. You're not allowed to have your phone. I was like, oh, snap. I signed up for the SAT. I had no idea. I just walked in and took the exam. I mean, I did okay, the average. And I could have went to any college, but Rutgers accepted me and gave me no money the first time around. Um, and I also had no help when I was applying. I was written off by a lot of my counselors and the vice um, principal in my school. Um, and, and to be fair, you know, it's hard to not write off someone with over 60 days of suspensions. At one shot, I had 21 days of suspension in one, one incident. So, you know, it's hard for them to be like, I'm going to focus on this kid out of the 800 kids that we have. So, you know, I was lost in the system um, for better, for uh, I think for worse, for sure, because these people forgot about me and I forgot about myself. But I then I went to community college and I said to myself that summer entering my freshman year of uh, community college, that this is my last chapter. If I don't fix myself now, you know, everyone's going to be like, you went to community college. Everyone's going to laugh at me. No matter how good I think community college is and no matter how much of a stepping stone I think community college is, which it is, I believe it's a great thing. And I do believe the government should make it completely free for everyone that wants to go to community college because that's part of us leveling the playing field, economic justice and political justice. But anyways, moving forward, is that I was in the classroom one day finishing up my application to Rutgers to transfer and I transferred and I realized I can go to medical school. I can go to medical school. At that point, I had a bio degree from Pasay County Community College. And I was like, I can go to medical school without being a bio major or any other science major. I can go to medical school with any degree I want as long as I finish the prerequisites for medical school. So I was like, okay, I'm going to switch over to nonprofit and public administration. And the original reason, and I, I feel a little ashamed about saying this, but the original reason, and I was told the easiest um, school out of all the schools at Rutgers was the School of Public Affairs and Administration, and it would be the easiest 4.0, and it would help me boost my GPA so that I could apply to Rutgers uh, Medical School or other, other medical school, because that medical school is very competitive. You need a very high GPA. So I applied to the School of Public Affairs and Administration, got in, got into the Honors Living Learning Community, which paid for me my whole ride. And so pretty much I was taken care of financially. I stopped working full-time. I was working as a, so talk about service. I was an emergency medical technician. You know, I was a first responder. Um, part of it was private work and part of it, a lot of it was private work, but some of it was public work as well too. Uh, when I say private, I mean, I was contracted by a company to do dialysis work, um, to transport patients from facility to facility. But anyways, um, I quit my job. I started studying for the, the, um, the law school admissions test, the LSAT. And um, the first time I took it, I got scared and I canceled my score. Um, and then 
I signed up for the course called Blueprint LSAT, um, and it was remarkable. And I took it, and I got really good score the second time I took it, which was the only time I had a score. I applied to that score to all law schools that I thought I would actually go to. My theory of life is that I'm not applying to something that I know that I don't want. So I applied to Yale, Stanford, Harvard, Columbia, NYU, U Chicago, University of Virginia, and Georgetown, and Pennsylvania, UPenn. So about nine schools. I applied to nine schools. I got into Georgetown, and I got a lot of money. I got like a $30,000 a year scholarship. Then I got into University of Virginia with a half ride. And then on top of the half ride, they gave me an extra money. And it was not tied to how much money I made during my law school summers at law firms. So it was called a merit-based scholarship. Harvard then got to me uh, a little later than everyone else. By that point, you know, Columbia had gotten back to me. They put me on the wait list. And Stanford was getting back to me. And I got in, got in at Harvard. And um, I applied early in the cycle, around October. Got my interview November 1st. Interviewed November 14th. When you get an interview with Harvard, there's an 80 to 70, 75 to 80% chance that you're getting in. So once I got the interview, I was like, all you need to do is act normal. That's the only reason to have an interview, to make sure that you're normal. Right At that point, you've on paper, you're good to go. Now they just want to be like, is this person a normal person that I want to have a conversation with at lunch? Is this someone that I want next to me in the classroom? Is this someone that I want to break bread with at the library at 10 o'clock at night? That's the hour conversation with an admissions counselor. You talk about a bunch of things. You see if you're normal. And then three months later, December, January, February, February 21st or 23rd, I don't remember the exact date, they finally got back to me. So once I got in, I let every school except Virginia know that I'm not going to go. I wasn't going to go to Stanford in California. Yale had rejected me by that point. Columbia, I said, if I'm going to go to Harvard, I'm going to go to Columbia. Like, I'm not going to go to Columbia. Columbia is a great school. I respect it, but I'm just not going to go. I took myself off of the, the University of Pennsylvania. I took myself out of um, Georgetown. I took myself out of NYU. And all I cared about was Harvard and UVA. The reason why I cared about UVA because UVA gave me so much money. And I, the reason I decided with Harvard, because in the end of the day, as a black man, you see how that part of my identity comes out? As a black man or as an African-American man, that Harvard has a different ring to it, right? When you tell a black man, where'd you go to school? He says, I graduated from Harvard. To anyone, that's a big deal. But to your black community, to your Muslim community, when we talk about confessions of a Muslim American, it's a bigger deal because those immigrant parents, they want, all of them want to send their children to Harvard. You know, when they think about like, where does my kid want to go? They don't say Columbia. They don't say Stanford. They don't say Yale. The only brand that's recognizable by every mom and dad is Harvard. So that to me was very important in my decision-making. Two, Harvard gave me a pretty much a half ride, need-based half ride. So at that point, I was like, okay, I'm losing maybe twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 with Virginia uh, over three years, 30,000, 30, but I'm making it up with the brand name at Harvard. And like you said, now that we're online, what really matters is where your brand is. Because I, I couldn't foresee my experience. That's going to be a pandemic, but I'm glad I went to Harvard 
because the Harvard name is super important. How did it feel when you think back to those times from, you know, moving around 9-11, all the challenges, all of that stuff to finding yourself at, you know, the heights of education in America? There is a book called Letters to a Young Poet. And in the book, um, a young soldier, which I think is relevant to this discussion with you, a young soldier is sent out to war. And during war, he writes letters to a poet, a very well-renowned poet. He sends him his poetry. And he says, if you have the time, can you look over my poetry? Guy reads it, sends it back, sends him a letter back and says, it's not that good, but, you know, keep going at it. So he asks him, what can I do to improve my poetry? Sends that letter back to the poet. The poet writes him this. He says, when you want it so badly, you're willing to give up your sleep. You're willing to make it the thing that you eat dream, think, wake up about. When you want to be the poet of your dreams, you have to make it your life's work. You have to sacrifice. You have to consciously work hard. He said, when you find yourself standing in line, think about poetry. When you sit down, think about poetry. Same thing that Stephen King said in his book on writing. He said, if you want to be a better writer, anytime you get the chance, read, write. Read, wake up in the morning, read. At night, write, switch it around, write in the morning, read at night, just keep doing it. And that was how I felt about Harvard. But by the time my junior year rolled around, I studied for six months. In the summer, I was, at, I was working in DC at a senator's office. And I used to ride my bike in the DC humid summer. I used to sleep. Let me tell you how crazy this is. My neighborhood in DC, the house that I was in was raided by the FBI while I was there because the person before me used to be a trap house. And the address used to be still associated with that trap house. So they came in at four in the morning, right? And they woke me up. And where was I sleeping? I was sleeping on the floor of the smallest room in that house because I couldn't afford rent in DC. And the lady was kind enough to give me half a room so me and another guy were splitting a room together. The closet is the size of maybe six feet. My my clothes for the entire summer were in one bag, and I'm sleeping on a thin mattress on the ground. And there's little to no AC in DC. And I would wake up in the morning, I would go to work as an intern, an unpaid intern on the hill, then I'd take my bike and my sweaty ass after a long day, and I would ride across town to the Capitol Hilton, and I would sit in class, and then I would ride from Capitol Hilton back to my place. It was a four-mile bike ride, and then I would sit in a coffee shop because the Wi-Fi wasn't good enough in my house, and I had no table. And I would sit and study for the LSAT. And after that summer internship ended, I came back, and I would drive my 2003 Toyota Camry, my hoopty, to William Patterson University. And I would go at eight in the morning. I actually have a friend named Suzanne Alfaro, 
who she and I used to compete for one spot on this campus, a beautiful spot with a lot of sunlight. It was a brand new building, glass building. And she and I would compete to who would get there earlier so that we could study. She was studying for her dental exam and I was studying for my law school exam. And she and I were like friends like for a while. And it was just like, we never planned it. But every time I'd show up, I'd show up before her because I wanted that spot because I wanted it. That spot resembled my spot at Harvard Law School. That spot in that room was my seat at the table. And I would study for eight, 10 hours a day. And I'd just do it day in and day out, day in and day out, all the way through September. And then when I took my exam in September, I got my score. And I was told it was good enough, but I wasn't satisfied. I wanted to get into Yale. I knew that my score was good enough for every school except Yale. Then I signed up a third time to take the December exam. Something that no one knows. I signed up a third time to take the December exam. And my score was like 174, 175, like really in the, in the mid-170s. And I was like, this is a big jump from my second, my first score to now. So I was like a seven-point jump or something. And I was like, I can definitely get in with this 170 and above to Yale. The night before, the night before the exam, I, I canceled my registration. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to kiss my blessings. At this point, I've already interviewed at Harvard. I don't need to take this exam. I'm good. I just shut it out. I never took it. And it turned out the way it turned out. But I knew early on in like my junior year, my entering my junior summer, entering my senior summer, I knew that I wanted to go to Harvard. And I dedicated every ounce of energy I had to it, like that young poet. What was your experience like there before the pandemic? Did it live up to your expectations? Um, Oh, man. Well, let me start by saying that it absolutely was my expectation. The people are kind. Uh, the people are great. They're nice. It, it, they're so smart. I think that is what honestly, it took me a while to get over imposter syndrome. I really felt like I didn't belong there. I felt like the state school kid who they just picked, plucked out just to say that, hey, they hit their quota. I felt like I wasn't there on my merits. And believe it or not, someone had sent me, this is a very you can Google this. Someone sent me it's a BuzzFeed article. Someone sent me hate mail saying, you don't belong here. You're only here because affirmative action. Everyone knows you're a joke. At least you get to boost the curve for the rest of your students because everyone's graded on a curve. So at least you boost the curve for the rest of your classmates. Um, and that's kind of you know how I internalized it in the beginning. But then I quickly caught my feet and I realized some of you don't even belong here yourself. Some of you are only here because of who you know. And then you have people who I absolutely adore this one guy named Chance Fletcher. Chance is a Native, uh, Native American um, Cherokee, very conservative, as far right as maybe Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. He and I don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Um, but I like him. He's a good person. His story is the story of an American. At Harvard, he was the kind of people that I wanted to be around. People who... Um, were working class Americans. He worked on a farm in the rural town of Oogaloo, Oklahoma. He, at the at some time in Princeton, he walked the Trail of Tears. Great guy, all of, overall a great guy. And I had a great, great group of friends um, that we're still friends. We have a group chat together. All of them, in some way, resemble the story. I have a guy named Gabriel Schreiber. He went to the University of Maryland. State school kid. I have a guy named Derek Parker. He went to Morehouse. You know, valedictorian at Morehouse. Rhodes finalist. He got into Yale, but accepted at Harvard. Great, great guy. I have friends named Sabri who went to Arizona State University. 
I have friends named Daniel who went to Brenton. I have black and white, Chinese, Asian, every, everything you could think about, you know, everything you could think about from across the world. Woman, I have this one female friend who transferred to, um, to Harvard Law. Her name is Annie, and she is remarkable. I, you have all of these incredible people, and for overall, most people at Harvard are incredible. And you get in the classroom. Now that I've rambled on about people, you get in the classroom, and wow. Wow, these people, their brain works at a different level. You, the discussions are so lively. You learn so much just from listening to your peers. You know, just listening to them talk, just like, wow, you guys are incredible. Everything about you. Our professor, Todd Rakoff, was our section leader. And to this day, he is the closest professor. Um, um, and Susanna Tobin, and also uh, the closest person I am, a woman too, and he's the closest man I am to. Susanna, probably the closest person I'm closest to. Them too, they shaped my experience so much at Harvard. And they're just average people that you'll never know. You'll never know anything about them. And they have done so much for people like myself. You know, they made me feel like at home. And they do the same thing for a lot of other students. And it's an inviting place, and it's a very accommodating place. And the people that make up Harvard Law School, the administrators, are like the people who make up government. Because Harvard truly, with its $40 billion endowment, is bigger than some countries. It's bigger than half the countries in the world in terms of how much money it has. Right? So the people that make up that ecosystem is what defines your experience. And I think like Barack Obama said, well, he and I both remember the most about Harvard is the people that we've met people that we've interacted with. I don't remember the classes that I've taken. I don't remember what I studied for. I don't remember the countless hours I studied. I remember Mike, the people like you at Rutgers. I don't remember the classes that we took together. I don't remember the names of our professors. Maybe like Michael Dillard, maybe I remember him, you know, but I remember people like yourself uh, that I've met. How old are you? I think that's, uh, I turned 24, 24. one day. So I'm gonna tell you something, right? You know, I'm an entrepreneur. Right. And uh, I have, I meet amazing mm-hmm. entrepreneurs in the veteran community. And there's some that I look up to. There's a guy named Mark D. Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. He's like a Rockefeller. He's one of them. Runs a startup, had a startup called uh, Street Chairs, which does lending to veteran owned businesses. It's done really successful. He's like a millionaire and everything. And I called him one day because he called me about something. And I just asked him, I was like, man, how do your, you know, how do you get like you? You know, I see you out here crushing it. You know, you got like, you got this company, you're doing all that kind of stuff. He's like, Mike, that is you, you know? And I think sometimes we get this experience of like, oh man, you know, the people in the room are so amazing, but we don't even realize that they're looking at us. They're like, yo man, you see that kid, Mo? Mo's 24, man, he's chopping it up. And it goes back to what you're saying, like imposter mm. syndrome. But I just, I just share that to you because I guarantee that they feel the same way about you. You're like talking about them, but you know, I'm sure you gave off that Mo light. Like I did there, little, little more light. Now, I do want to ask you a question though, right? So now we can kind of tie it up to the stuff I like talking about. All right. So right now mm-hmm. we're at this mist in like 2020 where you got working class blacks. I mean, not black, sorry. Working class Americans are starting to push back against that Harvard elite you're talking about. This idea of these are the group of people that run the country and that run government and that they're up there at Harvard on their yachts and blah, 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 right? Coming from their privileged background and the rest of us are out here. And 
you're seeing someone like, uh, you know, President Trump, who was able to come in and basically kind of take advantage of that and say, yeah, you're right. You know, screw those people. We need somebody new and walk, you know, right in. I want to hear your opinion on, on that. Well, like I think um, if you look at the 2020 um, elections and you split up the demographics, um, since the 1950s, uh, Democrats used to have a huge, I would say 1970s, Democrats used to have a huge share of working class voters. And I define working class people as people without a college degree. Um, people with a college degree, I, I put them as for a different category, I put them as professionals. Even though there are people without college degrees who run their own businesses, like um, Mark Zuckerberg, um, but I think as a general notion, we're not talking about the exceptions as a general notion, that's how you break it down. And in 2020, the Republican Party had more working class voters, the party that gave a tax cut to the wealthiest Americans in 2017. I know we remember this. The first thing they did, Paul Ryan, is pass a tax cut for corporations, right? The party that has more billionaires in their corner than the Democratic Party, these are just numbers, right? You can't dispute these numbers. The Democratic Party, however, has more college-educated people that vote for them. So they become the party of the, the college-educated group, which other people refer to it as the elites, right? And so at some point, when your government is filled up with people from Princeton, Yale, Harvard, it's tough. But I think if you ask any working-class American, what do you want for your kid? I want my kid to go to the best university in the world. What other parent? What other? What other reasonable parent would say otherwise? Mike, do you look at? You're a working class man. You're, you got it out of the mud. Your kid was born. You don't want your kid to go to Harvard. You don't want your kid to go to Yale. I mean, that would honestly, just be ridiculous. I'll tell you honest right? answer. I'll tell you honest answer. I don't think so. To be honest. Well, maybe maybe not Harvard or Yale because what they represent, but you want them to go to the best colleges. I I mean I do, but I just I think for me my sense of like I don't know I'm very protective of my culture, right? Like I am got my master's, you know, Af American studies, uh, undergrad in history. I'm getting exposed to all kind of different books and literature now, and I'm a very well read. My just stacked, right? And I realize in the traditional system it was never going to allow me to get that education, you know? And so for me, I think when I see a lot of young black men of color or black people in general, I feel like we have a self-esteem issue and I think it's perpetuated in the education system. And I think that spirit of black people is very hard to get cultivated, you know, at some of these institutions. And so for me, it depends, like I believe in the individual. Right. So if my son, daughter, whatever, they do want to go to an elite university and that's what they want to do, then by all means. But if they also want to go to a state school or community college or something, you know, I'll support them as well. I just don't see winning as black and white. I used to, you know, and I did. I went to a nice school. Don't get me wrong. I went to Naval Academy. My network is great. They do tons mm -hmm. for me, you know, but at the same time, I do understand it came at a cost. And that's why I have this platform confessions you know, of a native son. And so I don't know, man, I think, what is the purpose of education? It kind of goes back to that. And I just, 
Yeah, but I, I think the natural point, the, 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 I mean, not the natural point, the, the, or the point that I'm trying to get to is that most people want what's best for their children, right? And I think we can define best in different ways, but what we can't deny is that the opportunities, rightfully or wrongfully, that a place like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Stanford provide students. They provide them, you know, a trajectory into power, into opportunities that a lot of other universities can't do. And I think when we think about what's best, maybe you don't want them to lose that cultural roots, but believe it or not, Harvard has more resources dedicated to African-American studies and the same thing for Yale, Brown, and Princeton than most other universities. Actually, Harvard, how much it dedicates to its social studies is more than some universities have and money in the bank combined, including so many HBCUs. I'm not talking Howard Morehouse Spellman, right? I'm talking about the rest. So I'm going I'm to you know, counter your argument. We're not arguing. We're having a discussion, y'all. It's a lively discussion. But again, mm-hmm. I have a problem with that. These institutions are saying that they are the thought leaders within African-American studies, whatever, and you don't even have black people on faculty. You know? Well, that's that. That's not necessarily true. I think we could argue. How many? Not how many? Enough. I mean, we're not a lot. Well, well, Mike, if you, I mean, it's not enough. It is less. Not enough. It is less. It right? is a significant, small percentage. If we were talking about, it's, well, it's. I, I agree. It's not enough, right? But there are, and they're leading. Dean Claudia and Jean, uh, 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 Jean or Gray. She leads that. Then you have at uh, Wharton, the business school, you have a black um, AKA sister leading the Wharton school. You have so many people at Harvard. You have, you have Annette Gordon-Reed. You have, um, um, you have Ron Sullivan. You have Charles Ogutree. Uh, God, um, got to give him a speedy recovery. Um, you have so many black professors. You have Skip, Skip Gates, Henry Louis Gates at Harvard. At, at Princeton, you have um, Eddie. You have Eddie, Professor Eddie. You have Cornell West at Harvard as well, and Princeton. You have so many thought leaders. You have, you have, you had, um, what's her name? Toni Morrison at Princeton. You had so many, you know, world class thought leaders at these places, right? Th- th- you have them. I'm not saying that HBCUs don't have them. I'm saying that Harvard and other elite universities dedicate so much to these departments more so than so many colleges even have money. I'm not talking about, I'm saying my single department is more funded and better funded than some colleges, their entire college is funded. That's one. And two is that I think when we talk about children to the point of children about working class, the question is like working class are starting to view people from Harvard like myself with a doubtful eye. And I think you should be. Many people that go to Harvard forget their roots. Many people take the cushy, nice job at Harvard, at Wall Street, and they never come back to the communities. You have many people who then go down the street, you know, run for public office and forget everyone because they came from Harvard and then they went to Stanford or Princeton and they went to Yale, whatever. They just forget about us, right? That's true. No one's countering that point, right? But there are many working class Americans who then went off to a great school like University of Texas or Georgetown or University of Michigan or Rutgers or Harvard or Yale or Princeton. They went to great schools, then they got great opportunities, then they came back to serve their communities, and then eventually we tapped them to become part of our senior leaders in, in D.C. What's wrong with that? 
what is wrong with it? I mean, as long as we get a diverse set of people to run our government, there should be nothing wrong with that. We want the best and the brightest, you know, from, from wherever they come, including from universities that don the name of Yale and Harvard. There's nothing wrong with that. We want them. Where, where else do you want them? Do you want them to go to, do you want them to, go to see, China? But, but under, do you want to send our, here's the difference, do you want though. Them to you Wall Street? Do you, do you want them to Silicon Valley? Or do you want do you want these kids who are coming from the same backgrounds as us to then do their very best and we take the good ones, the ones who we can cultivate to run our country to go to that? And we should also include people that don't go to these top name colleges. They're not always the top, but you know, you should get people from the state schools. You should get people from, you know, um other southern schools from HBCUs as well too. Because there, there, some of them are great students that decided to go to these schools for different reasons, even though they probably had the opportunity to go to a top university uh, by ranking. And so, I think my short answer is that for that question is that working class people should not look down on, should not you know be afraid of people like myself who come from the same background uh, and what we will do in government because I come from the same experiences. I worked full-time while going to college full-time. I went to community college full-time, and then I went to a state school, you know? And then I, I, I applied to, um, I was the only person taken from campus-wide that went to, to Harvard. From all three campuses, New Camden, Newark, and New Brunswick. Out of 70,000 students, I mean, sure, many of them did not apply to law school, but some of them had to. I was the only one, the only one. And so obviously I feel an affinity to my community that got me there. And so I want to come back and help. I think that's the thing with a lot of people. Oh, feel. absolutely. And I think, you know, just hearing you talk, like I really do enjoy the discussion. I'm sure you get pressed a lot too. So I don't mean to press you too hard, you know, but this is just for no, me. No. I, I, I have friends. I have my best friend, two of my best friends. One just graduated Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School last year in May, this year in May, actually. Another one will graduate th uh, next year. All right. Help me stand up my nonprofit like bros like this tight best friends. And, you know, one of the things I do kind of tell them, I push back. It, it does bother me. You know, when I see, you know, in the post George Floyd era, we see all these thought leaders and these institutions want to come out and address racial equity and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, man, you don't even have it in your own firms. Like why is again, you know, not to beat up your school because it's, it's not just Harvard. It's like all these places. Right. The higher up you go in terms of wealth, there tends to be less people of color in the room. So let's just be honest. But I, I do find it um, not comical, but it does bother me that a lot of these places are trying to set policy and write all these thought articles. And it's like, how about you? Let's address it in your organization first before you try to push out thought articles on how to create racial equity and higher education and in business, et cetera. How about we check our boardroom? Do we have equity in our boardroom? Do we have equity of our staff? You know, do we have equity within our student body before we try to dictate and tell other people how to approach and solve these issues that we can't even solve ourselves? I agree. And I think you can do both. I think you could. Um, well, first, you don't want to throw stones if you live in a glass house. But also, um, I think you need to improve your own boardroom and then advocate um, for others to improve theirs. I think you can do both. But you're right. I think it's your message is taken more seriously. Um, if you are doing what you're saying you want others to do. It's, um, and it, it is hard. It takes self-awareness. You know, I'll tell you full transparency, y'all. I run an incubator here in the city of Newark, New Jersey, right? Free for youth and young adults. We teach them small business. We give them micro grants, right? 
and we get them started, provide them business coaching, et cetera. Arguably the group that can benefit the most from this program that we run are young black males, to be honest, right? I have to fight tooth and nail to get young black males to participate, you know, at scale, right? And it is very hard and it's very challenging. It's not something that just randomly happens, you know, it takes work, it takes effort. But I do think all I ask for is at least is some self-awareness from these places. And, you know, for me, that's why I get, not necessarily, it's like, like I, I talk a lot about the military on here because the military suffers it too. You know, the Marine Corps, all this, all this George Floyd stuff happened in the Marine Corps. It was like, oh, <laughs> you know, keep us out. Don't look in our room. You know, hide, we got to hide behind the windows and everything else. And so, um, but you bring, you do bring a unique perspective and I appreciate you sharing it. Yeah. And I think um, when the question comes to the military, I think we have to take down the Confederate statutes on military bases, uh, especially Confederate names of military bases. I think that's a no brainer. And uh, you can celebrate your cultural heritage at Gettysburg. You could put your, your Confederate statues in a museum. I just don't think that after losing a war um, uh, and losing, um, and I know, you know, almost, you know, they, I mean, Confederate soldiers fought bravely um, and they fought valiantly, but they fought for the wrong side. Uh, and they were pretty much traitors to the Union. And I don't think you should honor that. Um, and I think in the Marines and I think in the other military branches, God bless them for their service. And I think they should also take down the Confederate statutes and uh, memorials and any names of Confederates on any places in the, in the military. Um, so I think that's important. Yeah, I'm actually going to have a guest to come talk about the Confederate statues on this season. So uh, it's going to be mm-hmm. good. man. Well, I got a question, though. What? What's the future looking like for Mo? I mean, what are your aspirations? What are your goals? I mean, my goals right now is to graduate law school, uh, take the bar exam in July and pass the bar exam, uh, and then take a very nice one or two month vacation somewhere or like trekking the world. I don't care. I just need to get away. Um, And then, yeah, I mean... Let me see. 24, graduating Harvard Law School. I mean, I'm thinking about like, I mean, I'm thinking about what I want for the next six years. I think for the next six years is that I would like to, well, I do know that after I graduate, I'm going to go to a firm in D.C. uh, And then I will be clerking uh, for a federal judge in New Jersey and then another federal judge in Raleigh, North Carolina. And then, so that will bring me through 2024. Um, and I think by then I'm probably going to go back to a firm, um, um, so that I can like pay off my loans, um, send my mom to whatever places that she wants to go. My parents are elderly. So I want to know that their life is not, well, they've lived most of their life. I think that's a nice way to put it. And so I want to make sure that the remainder of their life, they have a very nice way of enjoying it. And so I want to take care of them and my family. And then, I think I want to come back to New Jersey or New York and uh, see where life takes me. And um, I think I would be in, very interested in, in, in service, uh, whatever form that looks like. Definitely going to be a power. He's going to, y'all heard it. He's got Robert Moses behind him. Is that, is that <sighs> Galio too up on the shelf? Is that principal? Uh, no, it's John Meacham. The, the hope of the hope of glory, which is the last words of Christ before 
Um, I mean, look at a Muslim person as the last words of Christ on his shelf. Uh, the last words of Christ before he uh, was crucified, uh, the power broker. And then to its left, I have Toni Morrison, Selected Works and Essays. And then I have a book called The American Healthcare Paradox, which is about American healthcare. These are books that I'm, I'm, they're, I'm either reading through or being read through. But right now I'm reading a book called The, the Battle for Our Better, Better Angels by John Meacham. Um, he's a presidential historian. And then another book called Last Witnesses. It's an oral history of children who survived World War II. And they give their oral recounts of what happened. And it's by um, Alaskovich. It's a Russian um, book that's translated uh, into English. How was that Robert Moses book? There's, I think Barack Obama read it at the same age that I read it at. Um, and he said that this taught him single-handedly the most about politics mm. about probably, practical practical politics and how it applies in real life i'm probably going to get it on audible i have a rule like if i see a book three times i get it you know and that book has been floating around i've actually his his cairo is his last name right the author caro caro yeah I've, i'm such a nerd i watch youtube book tv you know don't judge me but i've seen him talk about that book and i'm finally about to get it just that see book you, is, it's a huge book. It's a huge book, over a thousand pages. But if you, you know, have a routine, I mean, I, I was, I felt really bad in September. They probably read like maybe a hundred pages. But if you can do a hundred pages a day, you know, fifty hour, fifty pages an hour, you know, and then do that twice a day, you'll get through the book in ten days, dude. Think about that. Ten yeah. days to get through that book. I <laughs> do. I do audacious book. I've read Team Arrivals, Hamilton, Grant. I've read Team Arrivals. All those books. And but that one, you me seeing that book on your shelf is like the universe telling me, Mike, go ahead and read that book, get it knocked out. I'm actually reading a book, listening to a book right now by a Harvard Law School graduate, uh, Reginald F. Lewis. Reginald F. Lewis, yep. His name is on our building. That's right. Donated three million dollars. Mm-hmm. So, Mo, before I let you go. Right, you got a platform, okay? So you got my listeners out there, and what parting words do you want them to hear from you as a Muslim American? I know we jumped around, we talked about a lot of different stuff, but I want to allow you to uh, cl- get your final thoughts out to our listeners. Um, well, first, I want to thank them for listening to the entire podcast. It's a pretty long podcast, and is and it's, it's only made better by being here with Michael Stedman. Um, I think what I want to leave your listeners with is just to remember that in the end of the day, um, most Americans from all backgrounds want what's best for this country. Um, and our loyalty is to this country. And I think more importantly is that, you know, whatever preconceived notion you have of Muslim Americans, it takes one conversation with a Muslim American, maybe two for you to start breaking down those walls. Um, and whatever caricature that you have, it will be easily handled and displaced if you just have a conversation um, with someone who's Muslim or knows about Islam. And um, that's all it comes down to. It takes very little effort for us to um, have that conversation. I might be just, might be uncomfortable in the beginning, but it's worth it. And it'll teach you a lot, and uh, it will eventually um, make you a better person for it, and make them a person, better person as well too. So that's all. Where can people find you at, and how can they reach out to you? Um, I don't have any social media as of right now, um, but they could find me on my LinkedIn at Mo Light. 
uh, and it, it should have a picture of me in a suit. Um, and it should have my information that I'm at Harvard Law School right now. And so that way you'll know with me. Well, Mo, I appreciate you uh, jumping on the platform and engaging in some good dialogue with me. You know, it's crazy how like we'll disagree with stuff. We agree with stuff. We kind of come around. But I just think that's just American. I think that's the benefit of uh, mm-hmm. honest dialogue. And to our listeners out there, be sure to subscribe and support this podcast by giving us five stars and leaving a review on iTunes. Also, forward this show to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with the subject matter. I need you to also head over to confessionsofanativeson.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you like this type of dialogue and are interested in booking me to speak at your organization, you can contact me through the website. Just click the tab that says book me to speak, fill out your contact information, and someone from my team will get back to you as soon as possible. Also, order some real dope coffee at www.realdopecoffee.com. We've got to start supporting our own businesses. It's black and better known, and it is the epitome of economic empowerment. Feel free to message me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at mike at weareironbound.com. Special shout out to my co-producer, Mike Lloyd, and the team from the Gifted Sounds Network. Rooting for everybody that's black. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't have feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man. We